All right, we are continuing our exposition of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. This is an epistle that has as its purpose the maturing of the believer. That is the primary focus of this uh, epistle. And to help to bring about that maturing process, Paul focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is God and that he is sovereign over all. He talks about his deity, his creatorship, his being a sustainer of his creation. Paul talks about his sovereignty, talks about his work as redeemer, and the fact that he is the head of the church. I want you to listen to his words once again as given in the opening verses of the book. From verse 15. Read this passage because this is an amazing passage of scripture. Remember, Paul was praying that these Colossian believers might be filled with the knowledge of God so that they might become intimately related to him. They might get to know him better. And a result of knowing him better, they would apply the truth of the word to their lives. And it continues on and on with a close relationship with God. And so he focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. The intent being that the more you know about Jesus Christ, the more we become like him. And the more we become like him, the more we glorify him in our lives. So let's read these verses together, please. Beginning at verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So in these verses, Paul emphasizes the fact that Jesus is divine. He is God, God, a very God. He is prior and sovereign over all creation because he is their creator. He is creator of all that exists, everything. All creation is from him and for him. Notice that it's from him and for him. Creation was created in order to glorify Jesus Christ. And creation is under the control of its creator. All of the thrones and dominions and authorities and the power that exists is in the control of Jesus Christ. That's why it's very foolish to hear people to say that for Jesus Christ to do anything on earth today, he has got to get permission from the devil. That's one of the most foolish statements anyone can ever make. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is sovereign. Satan actually has to get permission from Jesus Christ to do anything. And as I mentioned last week, he knows that his time is short. So he's going to do all kinds of foolishness now. So all through these foolish people who are willing to see him and not Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord. He is the head of the church. This is his new creation. He is the sovereign head of the church. The same way he's sovereign over all creation, he is sovereign over the church. That's why he's the first of the resurrection, because the church exists in a sphere, a spiritual sphere that has never existed before the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was made head of the church because of his resurrection and ascension and being seated at God's right hand. That's why it's important for us to get our directions for the church from the head, Jesus Christ. Not from man, but from the head, Jesus Christ. That's why even now, as I mentioned last time, when we're making such an important decision as a senior pastor, prayer has to be priority in our deliberations. Not how much Greek or Hebrew the guy knows or how much experience he's had, 
But what is his relationship with the head of the church? He's also the reconciler of all creation. Now this tells us right away that something went wrong with his creation. It went estranged from God if it had to be reconciled. And of course we know the, st the story of that is given in the opening pages of the book of Genesis. The man sinned, God's representative words sinned, and he got away from God, he abandoned God's directions. Now, the word reconciliation, though, has a much broader meaning in Scripture than salvation. It doesn't just mean being saved from endless eternity without Christ. But the word itself means to remove all barriers or impediments to peace. To remove all barriers or impediments to peace in order that harmony may prevail. In other words, anything that prevents harmony is out of the way, is removed out of the way. So when Paul says in verse 20 of this chapter that Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, he means that a day is coming when all hostility of evil against righteousness will be brought to an end. And it will be brought to an end by Jesus Christ himself. Evil men... Fallen angels will find themselves unable to function in their enmity against God. It'll just be impossible for them to do anything that will bring about any kind of conflict anymore. Because God, through Christ and his blood on the cross, will remove that ability for them to do that. It, they will be subdued. They will cease their rebellion. And the basis, Paul says, for all of this is reconciliation, this peace is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. In other words, his sacrificial death for us. So beloved, please remember this. Every hurt at that time will be removed. Every hurt will be resolved. Every tear will be wiped away. Every pain we will, be, will be relieved. And at last, the whole universe will live in peace and harmony with one another. And in a very real and absolute sense, God's kingdom will come on earth at that time. In the words of the prophet, nothing shall hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. This, my friends, is where history is headed. And it's all because of the work of Jesus Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the reconciler. That's Jesus Christ. That's our God. That's our Savior. So, we wish we could spend more time on these verses here. In fact, each one of these phrases, descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can spend two or three messages or two or three weeks just dealing about the implied truths in this. But of course, we got to go, right? We don't have much time. So let's move on from the passage. Having described the deity and supremacy of Jesus Christ then in these verses, the apostle deals next with the impact of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians and the world as a whole. Because this whole point here is that it is the word of God that is essential to bringing about spiritual maturity. The word of God. Understanding it, obeying it in our lives, putting it to practice in our lives. This is how we mature in Christ. And Paul is going to show in this passage that that's Jesus' entire purpose here amongst his people, to bring us to Christ-likeness, not to develop programs, to have fun and to feel good and to be satisfied. No, no, but to become Christ-like in every area, every aspect of our lives. That's where the history of the church is headed. And the sustainer of the universe, the one who holds things all together by his word, is the one who will bring this about. So let's go now to verse 21 of the passage. Notice what he says. He says, this includes you who were once far away from God. Remember just before he says he's reconciled all things, heaven and earth, to himself. Now he says to Colossian believers, this includes you who were once far away from God. And so Paul is now describing the previous state of the Colossians. And what is the state of the unbeliever? the unbeliever in Christ. They are away from God. Not only that, they are his enemies. They are separated from him 
by their own evil thoughts and actions. That's the condition of everyone who is without Jesus Christ. If you are an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, this is your position right now. You are far away from God. You are at enmity with God. And you are separated from him because of your thought life as well as because of your behavior. That's the condition of every person outside of Jesus Christ. By the way, when we say that you're an unbeliever, we're not saying that you do not believe in God. An unbeliever is not necessarily a person who does not believe in God. An unbeliever, though, is a person who does not place faith in Jesus Christ, who is God. So understand that clearly. You could believe in God and still be on your way to hell. It's placing faith alone in Christ alone that places a person in fellowship with God. Notice here that Paul deals with the past of all believers in Christ, which, as I said, is, of course, the present for all non-believers. They are far away from God. You say, I don't feel far away from God. That makes it worse for you. If you have not placed faith in Christ, you are far away from God, whether you realize it or not. And what happens is when the Spirit of God reveals the truth that you are away from God and bring conviction upon you, then reconciliation is possible. Notice it's alienated from God and enemies in your minds. Now this simply means that individuals without Christ have no need for God in their lives. They don't see a need for God in their lives. And that's by their own choice. They might, yes, I believe in God, but they don't live as though he exists. This is what we call practical atheists, people who believe in God, but live as though he does not exist because they don't allow him to rule or to control their lives. And believe it or not, we have a lot of Christian atheists also. They do believe in God, but yet they don't allow him to rule in their lives the way they should. They want nothing to do with God if it has to do with their own personal lives. They do not want him to share that private part of their lives. They want nothing of holiness or commitment. But now Paul goes on to describe the state of the believer in verse 22. He says, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. This is the New Living Translation. Believers are reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ, brought into a peaceful relationship with God. We have been declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been placed upon us, and God sees us as he sees Christ. There's nothing that impedes our relationship with God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are reconciled with him. We are not far away. We are not his enemies anymore. He's a part of our daily life, our everyday individual life. That's what he's saying here. Paul describes amazing transformation then that takes place in the life and experience of the person who places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the payment of their sins. Notice what he says, but now. This is another one of those great buts. And it's B-U-T, not B-U-T-T, all right? As you go through scripture, you'll find a lot of places where statements are made, and then it says, but. And it brings in a contrast and it shows you what only God can do. That's what he says now. But, referring to the present status of believers, you are reconciled to God. As a believer today, rejoice in that fact. There's nothing that impedes your relationship with God the Father. Nothing at all because of the blood of Christ. You are at peace with God. God is at peace with you. You're reconciled. There's absolute peace and harmony between you and the living God. Do you realize what that means? Being able to be in the presence of a holy God. A holy God who cannot bear to live or to look upon sin. We have access to him because of our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, who did this? Who brought about this reconciliation? It was God who did it, not us. God was one who made the first move to reconcile. Notice this. 
God was not our enemy. God is not our enemy. But you choose to be his enemy. That's the trust of this, per- this passage. This is something we chose to do in our lives. We choose to be enemies of God. God, though, is the one who took the initiative to bring about peace, to cause that enmity to cease. He brought it about through the blood of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for us. That's how he removed the barrier that prevented you and me from fellowshipping with him. We are reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ. What a magnificent truth. Beloved, this is an amazing teaching. It's an awesome teaching here. It was not God who was alienated from us or at enmity with us. We were alienated from him and enmity with him both by nature and by our choice. But it was God, I say again, who moved, who brought, who made the initiative to bring about reconciliation. It was not us, it was God. That's why you have to be careful when you say that you are going to be saved whenever you want to be saved. Friends, that is not true. You can only be saved when the Spirit of God moves in your heart and convicts you that you are a sinner and causes you to realize that Jesus Christ died for you. You cannot choose that day. So when the Spirit of God speaks to you, and you will know when he speaks to you, there will be conviction in your soul that you are a sinner and that the only way you can have peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. You can only be saved when the Spirit of God motivates you to be saved. And if right now, as an unbeliever, you are sensing God's Spirit working in your life, you need to respond to that and place faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is a tremendous manifestation then of love, grace, and mercy for us. And so when a sinner acknowledges his or her sin, and realize that God's Son, Jesus Christ, bore the punishment for their sin, and realize and realize and relies solely upon his person and his death as the basis for your salvation, something extraordinary happens within that person. That's what Paul is trying to bring up bring about when he talks about now we reconcile. Something extraordinary happens. Our state changes. Our condition changes. Our position changes. Our outlook in life changes. We cannot come to Christ and remain the same. Impossible. That person has an entirely new and different mindset and a perspective concerning himself, concerning his sin, and concerning Jesus Christ as well. Something happens to our inner attitude. Something happens to our mind and the way we think. Dr. Ray Stedman made a great statement in this connection. This is what he says, and I quote him. We no longer see God now as an enemy and a judge, but as a loving father. We recognize that the cross was not a symbol of failure in the life of a religious fanatic, but it was a moment when the great enemies all men face were conquered, when death was overcome and all the evil powers against mankind were set at naught. Thus... Our whole life was changed. That's what happens when we are truly reconciled to God. Friends, listen. God is in the business of changing lives. That is what the gospel is all about. If you then believe that you need your life changed in a way that really matters and will be changed forever, this is where you must start. And that's where the opening of your life to Jesus Christ and relying upon him as your savior and as your Lord. That's the important thing. And that's the decision you need to make as the spirit of God works in your life and in your heart. By the way, when we talk about change, when, it become, when you become a believer, you must keep in mind that if you are not daily changing into Christ's likeness, that's a time for you to re-examine your faith and see if really you are in the faith. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Paul doesn't stop there about this 
state of reconciliation. He goes on to show that conversion, beginning with reconciliation, is the process with a specific end purpose in view. Notice what he says in the verse 22. As a result, result of being reconciled, as a result of placing your faith in Christ, he has brought you into his own presence. That's a tremendous statement. Far away from God, alienated, enemies, but now in his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fall. Isn't that amazing? Just see the contrast. Enemies far away cannot be in the presence, but now in his immediate presence without a single fault. And it's all because of the blood shed on Calvary's cross. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that amazing? Paul says then in this passage, and this is something that we overlook as believers because we're so glad that we've got a ticket out of hell, we forget everything else. Paul in this passage says that the purpose of our reconciliation is, to, is for God to present you holy in his sight without blemish and as one translation says, free from accusation, free from blame. In other words, God's purpose for us as believers is that we might be mature in Christ and he fully intends to accomplish that purpose, Paul says, and Paul is committed to see that that happens. We're going to see that he ends this chapter by saying his whole life, all his struggle is committed to that one purpose of seeing that believers in Christ are matured through the proclamation of the word of God. Paul is going to be saying that in a moment. But we are accepted in his presence. We can come boldly now with assurance before the throne of grace. And as Pastor already mentioned this morning, seek help and grace in the time of need. Jesus Christ went into the very presence of God. He opened the way for us. But he didn't close that door. He left it open so that we could come after him and go right into the very presence of God. Oh, friends, I hope that you are reveling in that blessed truth today because you've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. So the question is, how can we know that we are progressing satisfactorily toward this goal or purpose? How can you know that you are truly saved? How can you know that God is really doing something in your life? Paul gives us the answer here. And as I mentioned, this is an area you don't hear too much preaching about. People today, you know, says, are you saved? Yes. How do you know? Well, five years ago, I walked down the aisle. I did this. This is how I know I'm saved. Paul wouldn't ask that question today. Paul asked, how do you know that you are being saved? You see, salvation is in three tenses. Past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. And we need to rejoice in that. But that's not the final purpose or objective for our salvation. Then there's being saved from the power of sin. That's when we become Christ-like. When we allow the Spirit of God to control every aspect of our life. Our thought life, our behavior, everything. When we realize that these bodies of ours belong to Jesus Christ. These members of these bodies belong to him. And they should not be used for anything other than to glorifying him. That's why, now it doesn't make me holy or anything else like that. But as I mentioned to you, every morning before I put my feet on the floor, I repeat the passage in Romans 12, 6. I present the members of my body as instruments of righteousness. That's for the use for. To be used, that's what Paul is saying here. Paul says that we can know if we are moving to God's purpose for our salvation. Now, notice what he says. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the gospel or the good news. Notice, Paul is saying that our assurance is based upon the word of God, not how we feel. That's why... And I have the privilege of leading anyone to Christ when we give them assurance. I never tell that person they're saved. The only person who should tell another person who is saved is the person of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. 
That's why we take them to 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things that he just said, have I written unto you what? That you may know, not hope or feel or guess, but that you may know that you have eternal life. And so I go over that passage, the person just says, are you saved? Yeah, how do you know? Well, I feel good, man. I felt my heart felt warm. I felt something in my chest. I said, that ain't, that's no proof that you're saved. Maybe you get indigestion or something going on. I, I don't know. I said, look at this passage again. What does this passage say to you? How do you know that you have eternal life? He reads it all. He says, well, if I have Christ, because it says if you have Christ, his life is in his son. So if I have his son, I have life. I say again, do you have the son? He says, yes. I said, how do you know you have the son? He says, well, man, a burden has been lifted. I had this burden. All of a sudden it's gone. I say, you had no burden. No, no. What does this passage, this passage say anything about any kind of a burden? Of course it doesn't. And he goes until he finally says, if I have the son, I know that I have eternal life. Now, how do you know that you have the son? And that's when they go over again about placing faith in Jesus Christ. Have you placed faith in him? You believe that he and he alone died for you on Calvary's cross and that his blood cleanses you? Yes, I believe that. So that means you have the son. Now the passage says what? If I have the son, you have what? I have life. Who said that? And not until they say God says, well, I let him go. Because they must understand that it is God who is saying it, not Pastor Lee or anybody else who is leading them to Christ. And that's an important thing. Very important. Many people go away with some people that led to Christ and they give them a false assurance. They base their assurance not on what God told them, but by what the counselor told them. And that's not good enough, no matter how good the intention. So he says here, you must continue to believe in this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. One translation puts it like this. By the way, in the context, it has to do with the good news of reconciliation. If you continue in your faith, Establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Notice very carefully now, I want you to get the word of God here, not our opinion. It's continuing that is the proof of reality. It is continuing in the faith that is the proof of reality. A sure and certain evidence that you are maturing in the faith then is that you are continuing on in the faith, which means being established in the word of God and looking forward to the hope of the blessed return of Jesus Christ as promised in the word. That was one of the problems in Colossians. They had a problem with hope. Faith and love were strong, but they had a little problem with hope. That's why Paul is focusing on this, so that they might, he might be able to give them all of the truth that is concerned with the virtuous faith, hope, and love. Now listen carefully to this. Many have made professions of faith in Christ. And they started out well. Filled with joy and excitement. But then after a while, the excitement fades. And they go back to the old way of life. Some will say such people have backslidden. But have not lost their salvation. However, the Bible, including this passage we're looking at right now would say that such individuals never really had the true faith in the first instance. How do we know? They did not continue. And it's continuance that proves the reality of one's faith in Christ. That is why I'm saying salvation has to be seen as a progressive thing. Saved from the penalty, being saved from the power. How do I know that I've been saved from the penalty? Because I am every day being saved from the power. It's a coming the day, of course, when we will be saved from the very presence of sin. But the proof that I have been saved from the penalty of sin is the fact that I am being saved from the power of sin because I 
I'm committed totally to the control of the Spirit of God in my life. I am maturing. Someone has put it this way. If your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it was faulty from the beginning. If your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it was faulty from the beginning. So how do we know that we've been saved from the penalty of sin? It's the continuance in that faith that proves the reality of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this does not mean that faith cannot waver and wobble at times. Because it does. In fact, it does with most believers. If not all of us, sometimes during our Christian experience. But true faith, genuine faith, never ceases to take hold of the believer. It never stops before God's purpose is realized. It never stops that transforming work. It cannot. We may fall, but we get up and continue on again and again. In the cryptic words of the apostle Peter, he says, we do not return to the vomit of the old life. It's impossible. The only one who can do that are those who have never really been reconciled, redeemed, or regenerated in the first instance. Continuance in the faith is an evidence of the reality and genuineness of that faith. We've got to get over this now, looking at people who live such cold, indifferent, unholy lives and just say, well, that's just a phase of their life. No, 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 no. You had to deal with those people according to the word of God. Ask them, challenge them to examine their faith, to see really if they are in the faith. Paul then goes on to talk about the impact of preaching the gospel throughout the world. Because that is his emphasis here, the importance of the word of God. That's why I say to you that the word of God is so important for you in the maturing of your faith. If you are not in the word of God, if you're not studying the word of God, as Paul says here, that we might be filled with the knowledge of God, which comes through a study of the word, you will not be able to be living the way God wants you to live. You might be patterning after what somebody else says, but you've got to go according to the word of God. This is what he says in verse 23, the last portion. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servants to proclaim it. Paul is now teaching us the truth that God's word has been appointed to ambassadors to explain it. Everyone who has been reconciled to God is an ambassador of the word. Now be careful with this word because we're getting some other false teaching here today about ambassadors. Because I'm ambassador, then the state takes care of my every need. And I get everything the best. I got to have the best cars, I got to have the best clothes, everything. Why? Because I'm ambassador of the king. That's foolishness. He's talking about communicating the truth of the gospel. That's what he's talking about and that alone. Faith in Christ resulted in these Colossians being redeemed and reconciled to God. Who, which, which, the gospel was, was preached to them by someone. Now we know that the someone who preached this gospel to the Colossian was not Paul. It was Epaphras. It appears that Paul preached Epaphras, then Epaphras preached the gospel to the Colossians. But Paul is putting out a principle here. Look at it carefully. The principle is this, the gospel must be heard and believed and it must be preached in order to be heard and believed. It must be preached in a way, we'll see in a moment, that is understood. The word, not our opinion about it, but the word itself. And we're going to look at the ramifications of this truth in a minute. But now Paul makes an ex a, a, a troubling statement here to some. He says, the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. How could that be? I don't think Paul knew about Nassau Bahamas back then. When he preached, I don't think he even knew about North or South America. When Paul wrote this epistle, in fact, he had preached himself only to a few cities of the Roman Empire, which was a small part of the planet at that time. In fact, he did not even go to Colossae. Paphras was the one who went there, not Paul. How then could Paul say this? 
that the gospel, the good news has been preached throughout all creation. Paul explains it really if we are careful to read it and study the word. If you go to Romans chapter 10, for instance, and by the way, he, he quotes from Romans 10 in a moment, or actually Psalms that is quoted in Romans 10. In Romans 10, he explains and elaborates on the need to have preachers who are sent to preach in order that all may hear the gospel. You remember how they preach unless they be sent and so on. But now, Paul asks in the passage, have they not heard? The implication being, have they not already heard? Have they not already heard? In other words, yes, we need preachers to go, but haven't they already heard? He answers his own question in that passage by quoting from Psalm 19. This is what Psalm 19 says. Their voice has gone out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Paul quotes that in Romans 10. So what is he saying? He is saying that creation is the first preacher of the good news. The gospel. And that creation has preached the gospel throughout the world. Listen to what Psalm 19 says. I'll read just a couple of verses. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night by night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, listen to this now, nor are there words. Their speech is not heard. But now listen. But yet, their sound has gone out through all the earth. Isn't that no speech, no words, no hearing, but yet the sound has gone throughout all the earth. Only God can do something like that. That's why when you talk about logic, don't try to work logic always with God. Remember, besides human logic, there's something we must call theologic, God logic. For instance, human logic tells us that God cannot be man. Isn't that right? But theologic tells us the man, Jesus Christ, is God. Right? So what I'm saying is here, this is where faith comes in when we talk about the logic and things. Let's be careful here. Their sound that you cannot hear has gone throughout all the earth. In other words, God has designed the cosmos to be a preacher of his presence, his power, and his wisdom. And notice, this is one preacher you cannot shut up. This is one preacher who does not allow time to limit the message or what they have to say. This is one preacher that preaches all the time, day and night. Friends, listen, there is order in the universe. There is divine intelligence behind it all. And it preaches that there is a God. That's why the Hebrews could, the book, the writer of the Hebrews could say, he that comes to God must what? Must believe that he is. That's, now listen, creation helps us with that. But then it goes on. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's where faith comes in. You see? If anyone anywhere responds to the facts that nature presents about the existence of a God of power and glory and begins to seek him, then God himself assumes the responsibility to bring him to hear of the Redeemer and the Reconciler, the Savior and Sustainer of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. Wonderful truth here, beautiful truth taught here. We need to preach, yes, but God is at work as well. The word has to get out. Listen now, very carefully. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. God will bring the seeking soul to Jesus Christ. That's the reward of those who seek him after looking at science, if you want. One of the major reasons why many scientists will not accept the idea of an intelligent designer is because simply they do not want to believe that there's God. That's all. Simple as that. You see? And what God is telling us here is that if we would accept the scientific proof 
the design, the intelligent design of the universe, he would lead those people then on to a further knowledge and reward him with true knowledge of the Savior. God will bring the seeking soul to Jesus Christ because his or her seeking is an indication that God is already at work in their life. They have heard the preacher of creation. It was God who took the first step in initiating that contact through his creation. God always takes the first step. We never do. But now Paul states something else in this passage. And I want to see how important it is to look at the word and to study it well. Or you miss a lot of things. He states that the character of those who truly preach the gospel is that they are servants. Notice the text. He's a servant of proclaiming this gospel. He's a servant. He's not the master of his message. He's not a designer of the message. He's not the originator of the message. He's the servant of the messenger. He cannot change that message. This is a distinguishing mark by which you can tell whether a preacher is true or false. Is his or her emphasis on what God has done for us in Christ? Or is it on what they can get from you for themselves, for their ministry? I want you all who listen to these people who talk about sending money into, as a seed to their ministry. Compare the time they talk about sending a seed as the time to talk about explaining the gospel. And see where it goes. A preacher of the gospel is a servant of God. To give away the gospel through preaching. He gives it away. He's not a master or owner of the gospel who sells it in order to enrich themselves. You can always tell the difference between a servant of the message and the one who wants to master the message themselves. This is the difference, I say, between a false and a true witness. The false think God works for them. The true delights in the fact that God is using them as servants and they do not regard it as a burden but the highest honor they could ever be given. And there's cost involved. A personal cost we'll see for in a moment. But let me just read you one other passage here about an ambassador. This goes back now to Second Corinthians. Notice what he says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. Notice now, who reconciled us to himself, to Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice now, that came at the moment we were reconciled. We were made ambassadors the moment we were reconciled. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us, notice, committed, entrusted to us, the word of reconciliation. That's what we call the gospel. The gospel is not only that you're a sinner and Jesus died and you must receive him. That's just a part of the gospel. The gospel is the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That is the messenger of the ambassador. Be reconciled to God. And that's what we should be doing on a daily basis. Proclaiming this message. But now Paul goes on in verse 25. To show that such a commitment to the gospel involves personal sacrifice and suffering. Today you don't hear about that too much. Today you find people getting into ministry because they believe it's lucrative. It's a good business. They can have a better home. They can have a better boat. They can have all kinds of things better. But they never bring in the idea that it could cost them something. It could be sacrificial as well. Notice what he says. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. These are some amazing words. Don't let's bypass these too quickly. Paul was in prison when he was, working, when he was writing this letter. He was in prison. He was suffering physically 
for being a proclaimer, an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says first in his passage that he rejoices in what he suffered in helping to get the gospel to the Colossians. He rejoiced in his sufferings that he endured so that the Colossians could hear the gospel. Now I could say, Paul, you're a hypocrite. You didn't preach the gospel to the Colossians. It was Epaphras. You never went to Colossae. But Paul is giving us the principle that we must not <coughs> lose sight of. It cost Paul much personal pain to get the gospel even to Epaphras, who then got it to the Colossian. Paul sees his part in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in a general way. And he saw it as a definite contribution in getting the gospel to the Colossians specifically, although it was not done by him personally. Now there's a principle here that we must not overlook. Like creation, which continually proclaims the existence of a divine being through the combined wonder of the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets, the plants, the animals, and even man himself. So is the gospel preached continually around the world through believers as they pass it on one to another. You understand that? Paul is saying that today believers are just like creation. The message of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed around the world all the time. How? Through you and me passing it on. That's how. And the only reason that the gospel could be preached here is because someone brought it here. Is because someone was willing to spend the time, the effort, or whatever it was to get the gospel to us. Paul, in his sufferings at the hands of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, could well say that he had suffered personally in getting the gospel to the Colossians, even though he had not personally preached in that city. But then he says something even more amazing. But, but don't forget that now. Paul is telling us that God is proclaiming his gospel all the time. He does it through creation. It never shuts up. He does it through you and me. We should never shut up either. Now you say, I wish you would shut up. I won't go home. <laughs> all right. But the point is this. You and I cannot shut up when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are doing it as we should all the time, then Paul is saying that the same way creation is preaching all the time, without interruption, so is the gospel being preached. You get that message? That's what he's saying here. Now Paul says something else though very strange. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is saying that what he suffered personally filled up or completed what was still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now many people say Paul is trying to say here that he is helping Christ in our redemption and going through the sufferings of Christ. He's not talking about that at all. And the word affliction is the one that gives us the truth. What does he mean by this? Was something lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ for us? Of course not, it was not. When he said on the cross it was finished, it was finished, completed, done. Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins. That means his death satisfies God's uh, attitude toward us as enemies. That's how reconciliation came about. His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. Nothing is lacking. So what is Paul talking about then? Well, the word afflictions here is the one that must be understood. This word is never used in scriptures to describe the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is never said that Jesus Christ was afflicted for our sins. Afflictions are what Jesus experienced at the hand of men before the cross, not what he experienced on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sin. He endured afflictions because he became a man so that he could die for us as a man, man who was God. But these afflictions were not a part of his redeeming work. 
That was accomplished, as I said, exclusively on the cross at the hands of a holy God. Paul himself exhibited this. Remember on his way to Damascus, he was knocked down from his horse. Jesus Christ appeared to him. What did Jesus ask him? Saul, Saul, why what? Why persecutest thou me? Me. Now, was Paul persecuting Jesus Christ personally? No. But he was persecuting his body. And Jesus himself is saying that if you persecute them, you're persecuting me as well. That's his point now. So Paul was actually saying, Jesus was actually saying to Paul, Paul, or rather Saul, Saul, why are you afflicting me, is the idea. Why are you causing so much problems and difficulties to me? You say, what does that have to do with us today? Well, it has to do with our attitude and gratitude. We should never open our Bibles and not thank God for somebody like... Like who? Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, and so on. Those people were persecuted. They were afflicted. They were martyred so that you and I could have the Word of God. And there were thousands more. There are Christians around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. People who wrote the Bible in the early days in order to get it out, they were killed. Their families were killed. They were persecuted. They were afflicted in every area of their life. The only way that we got the gospel here in the Bahamas is because somebody like Tyndale and who's the other fellow you mentioned? Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, uh, was willing to pay the price. They suffered on behalf of the body of Christ, you and me, so that we could get the word of God and pass it on. Point is this. Are you willing to suffer to pass the word of God on? Or are you so ashamed to share the gospel with those with whom you work, or your neighbors or your friends? You're too embarrassed to talk about Christ. See, that's where the challenge comes here. We could stop the word from being preached because we are afraid of afflictions on the behalf of the body of Christ. All right? See, remember this. The devil and all his angels, the demons, cannot get at Jesus Christ right now. But he can get at you. They can get at me. And that's where they attack. Isn't that right? They can do that. That's why we must stand firm on the word. That's what Paul is talking about here. All right? So never read the scriptures, beloved, without remembering what it costs others for you to have the Bible in their hands. Listen to another quote of Dr. Ray Stedman. He said, It took the blood of martyrs, the fears and tears of persecuted people throughout centuries, the sweat and labor of translators, and the effort of teachers to make the word plain and clear. Do you thank God for those individuals? Do you praise God for them? Are you willing yourself to suffer? And so it all goes back to the Apostle Paul himself. His suffering in order to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth have direct impact upon our hearing the gospel and our placing faith in Jesus Christ. His suffering, like our suffering for the cause of Christ, affects and impacts upon the entire body of Christ as well as Christ himself, who is the head of the church. That's why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. What a fantastic concept this is. Now, quickly, this proclamation demands faithfulness to the context of the message. Notice what he says in verse 25. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church. By proclaiming his entire message to you. Get that? His entire message. No scratching, or, no scratching or tickling of the ear for Paul here. He preached the whole counsel of God. He called sin for what it is. And that's all. He preached the word and the word alone. No psychology to ease one's conscience of self. Or no self-ology to promote one's ministry. No personal philosophy 
to promote one's knowledge, but the entire message of God, the entire word of God. He proclaimed the word because he realized it was only the word that could lead a person on to maturity, to be like Christ. He goes on to verse 26 to tell about the mystery of this message. He said, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles also. And this is the secret. Christ in you. Christ lives in you. The hope of glory. This translation says, this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. In other words, this message brings out the wonderful truth that God lives within us. Those who have been reconciled. Do you realize that the whole objective of God's plan is that he might live amongst God's people? That's what heaven is going to be. God living in the midst of his people. Read Genesis. Read the book of Revelation. That's what heaven is. God living in the midst of his people. And it's happening now with the believer who has been reconciled. Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, he's trying to build up the hope of these Colossians. And what is that hope? Realizing that Christ lives within us. How did the other person know that Christ lives within you? Because you're going to live like Christ. You're going to allow him to live his life out in you. If this is not happening, check to see whether or not you be in the faith. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul said this message is important. You understand the word of God. Notice what he says. He talks about the objective. Why is he preaching? We tell others about Christ. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God. Perfect or mature in their relationship to Christ. That's the objective for his proclamation, for his proclaiming the gospel. To see that they become mature in Christ. Notice what he says. That's why I work and struggle so hard. Depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. With powerful words. Paul's entire life and ministry were consumed with leading believers towards spiritual maturity. And the means of doing so was the proclamation of the word of God. With utter dependence upon the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's important for us to understand. We have missed this principle in teaching about the church. And the importance of the word of God being proclaimed to the people of God was established from the very beginning of the church. We all look at though. Let me just go through it quickly. This, has, this is from the book of Acts chapter 6 when the church started to grow. Notice what it says. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So right from the very beginning of the church, we had a conflict with people. That was the problem. Here is the solution. The 12, those are the leaders, those are the apostles, called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God. See, to them, that was the priority not caring for the daily distribution of food. Not that it wasn't important, mind you. But as far as priority, we, for them, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men, that's the solution, who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Now, when we go to this passage, by the way, it goes on and says, everybody liked this, liked this idea. And they chose the individuals, they presented them, they were chosen, and so on. And then it says in verse 7, so God's message continued to spread. Notice the emphasis was on the spreading of the message, not the growth of the church. And the church should grow, but the emphasis wasn't on that. It was the spreading of the message. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. The numbers did not increase because they were taking care of the widows. That was important. It increased because the word of God was spread. That's the point Paul was making. Paul made a point here, and we got to get when we go to this passage, normally we say that's how they chose deacons. 
no word of deacons, no mention of deacons is in this passage at all. This is just how a problem was met. And the big problem was, what can we do to make sure that the word of God is being preached by those who have been appointed to preach the word of God? What must we do? Give them time and room to do it. Don't crowd them up with so many other important things that the top priority for them will be hindered. That's the point. That's the message here. The word of God is important. So don't impede those who are preaching the word from doing so the way God wants. But it's amazing how we overlook that. We put more emphasis upon the deacons being chosen than we do upon making sure that the preachers have the time and what they need to pray and to study the word of God. And that's completely missing this message here altogether. That's why Paul says, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Paul is saying here that proclaiming the word of God is hard work. And we must be absolutely dependent upon the spirit of God to give us the strength and the wisdom to do it. I know some of you say, man, the preaching, you know, all you got to do is get up there and talk. You know, that's all you got to do. Now, a lot of people just do that. They don't preach the word. They don't teach the word. That's why it's not hard work for them. Because they don't look into the word to find out what the word is saying. They just talk what they want to talk. But throughout the scriptures, you'll find that preaching and teaching is hard work. Listen to this. Elders or pastors who do their work well should be respected and paid well. Notice now, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. This is emphasizing what was done at the beginning of the church. It's hard work to preach and to teach the word accurately. Now, I'm going to be the first one to say, it's not hard work if you don't want to get the truth out. If you only want to get out your ideas, your, then it's no hard work. You don't have to go and see the meaning of this word. You don't have to look and see and realize that the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. And that those who preach and teach the word should have a little idea of what is being taught from the word, not what man is saying. But we lost sight of that today. Oh, he means well. His heart is good. Let's give him a chance to preach tonight. You see? We handle that so indifferently. The Bible never does that. We've gotten so far away from that, what the Bible teaches about preaching and teaching the word of God now that you have a pastor. you got to do everything. Everything in the world. They don't have time for prayer and studying the word of God. And you can tell it when they get up to the pulpit. See, one of the things that you could understand with us who preach and teach the word is that it's not that we don't have enough to say. It's that we got too much to say, but not enough time to say it in. That's the problem. But now going back to our message here. Action points. Strive for maturity not stagnation in your Christian life. In other words, examine your life. How much do you know about the word of God? Do you really read it and do you really study the word? Are you really concerned enough to sit and to listen to the word being taught by those who have been gifted for it? Do you have a plan yourself of sharing gospel to others? This is what it, all of this is signs that we are maturing into faith that we are allowing God to transform our lives. Major on knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word, not being active, not simply being active doing programs. Many people get the idea just because I'm involved in the ministry in the church, I'm okay. I've been doing this for 10, 15 years. I come out every night. I come out every Wednesday, whatever the night may be. I'm faithful and they think that they're growing as a Christian. Not necessarily so at all. You could be busy as a bee and still not growing and maturing in Christ. You've got to be sure that you know the word, you're applying the word, and that you are seeking to be more like him. Strive for intimacy with God. That's what the passage tells us. Knowing God better. When you go to the scriptures, don't go to sin. Let me see what God has to me to do today. Let me see what God has to say for me today. Don't go to that message. Lord, tell me something about yourself. Reveal yourself to me. Let me learn something about who you are. Reveal yourself to me. Let me get to know you better. 
That's what we have to strive for. And that will be an indication to us, by the way, that we are being saved from the penalty of the sin because we are being saved from the power of sin and we're growing and maturing. Amen? All of God's people said, Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be faithful ambassadors to share that word on an ongoing basis, day in and day out. Help us to grow in Christ. Help us to get to know Christ better so that we might have an intimate relationship with the triune God. In his name we pray. Amen.